Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hello, 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 and welcome to the show. I guess this will be our 30 days half September, April. Oh, no, it's not our last show in April. (laughs) It's April 26th. God. Why do I think? I think it's May. I don't know why. But uh, anyway, here we are. It's a Friday. <sighs> you know, I, you have to figure that if, I mean, for almost all of my life, right, every, since I've been five or six, I have been um, on a Monday through Friday schedule all through school and then the world of work although come to think of it there were times when I no didn't have Monday through Friday but I had a five-day work week that included weekends but you know it's just amazing how you sort of you can't wait till that last day of your of your work week and then I don't know about you, but I am notorious for wasting my weekend by just lying around doing absolutely uh, nothing. I don't know. I'm uh, I'm loath today to talk about what you know all the cable shows are talking about, which seems to be what Joe Biden. You know who, and I just mm-mm, don't want to. It's um, it's enervating. That's a word I misunderstood the um, definition of for years. Um, it sounds the opposite of what it is. Enervate, just because I guess it starts like energy. I thought initially that it was that. It was about energizing when in fact it's the exact opposite <laughs> so I go figure so I'm enter um, I find it enervating really exhausting and, and you know this is nothing new we all do so I was um, watching what's his name win another game of Jeopardy last night And the commercials on Jeopardy and actually the the news before Jeopardy, the network news before Jeopardy and Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune just crack me up because if you ever, you know, if you want to feel old, just watch those shows because it's so clear um, who they know is watching those shows because every commercial, I know I've said this before too, is some god-awful pharmaceutical for some god-awful disease you didn't even know existed, but once you see it, and it's, again, I just always find it so hysterical about how all these people suffering from, you know, end-stage cancers and horrifying uh, cardiac issues and and, uh, gastrointestinal horrors they're always so happy. <laughs> They're just, 
they're smiling and beautiful and smelling the roses and watching the birds and living life large. And um, there's just so many <laughs> disconnects. Uh, okay, so I'm in, I'm in an odd mood. I am, I admit it. Um, I got really, this is nothing new, but stop and think. I've been railing a lot, I know, about our culture. Um, you know, and that's a big, that's a big umbrella, our culture. There's wondrous things happening in our culture. But overall, I, I do think my criticism of our culture um, is, is, is pretty true. Um, and that is, it's just polluted <laughs> and corrupted. And it is why I have said that Donald Trump, in many respects, is the perfect representative of America. He's like, my brother said this, and it's true, he's like our Dorian Gray. He's our, he is that picture that we don't want to look at. He's that mirror of our culture, ourselves, our country that we turn away from in, in, in revulsion and horror, but he got to where he is because our culture, our political culture, our media culture, our celebrity culture, our worship of rich people culture elevated him. What our culture doesn't celebrate at all is character, honesty, old kinds of virtues. They are given no weight, obviously. It used to be it was all about money. And that is clearly what this country worships. One nation under God? I think not. One nation under mammon and unfettered greed. That is what this country, as I look at it, seems to be. And it's a winner-take-all country, increasingly. And the popular culture is vulgar, is... Uh, overly sexualized, which I know if, uh, I know when you have younger children is really uh, incredibly upsetting. Um, technology, you know, our, our, our research and science has brought us this technological revolution, which is obviously doing some really wonderful things um, in medicine and other um, pursuits but also is doing us grave damage in terms of, again, the kinds of things that should be valued. Human contact being number one. So think about how we as a culture, and e even us individually, measure success. How would you say we measure success? 
It's pretty clear to me. <laughs> it's money and status and power and celebrity. And think of all of those things. They are empty things. They are nothing of true value. Seriously. So if you wanted to create a, um, a culture that was conducive to bringing out the best in people, to rewarding people for good things, as opposed to, let's say, driving out a bunch of ma-and-pa businesses <laughs> and uh, capturing the flag and taking the hill and, uh, you know, monopolizing a sector of the economy. That is what we call success and we look up to. And I don't think... Our culture clearly is a culture that makes us unhappy, that makes us stressed as holy heck, that makes us... And the stress comes from trying desperately to keep up the pace that the guys at the top have created for us, the worker bees, <laughs> to keep up that pace. We're scrambling around, most people, for, you know, for what we're told we're supposed to scramble for. Obviously money, because everybody does need some. It gets harder and harder to get the less powerful you are. This is an ugly culture and I would love to talk to somebody who thinks otherwise I would I would I would pretty firmly argue uh, my position that if you wonder why you're exhausted angry frightened stressed depressed anxious it's because you're living here and now in a culture that values nothing of real value. And it's how you get this celebrity television fake gazillionaire clown as the representative of our nation. And that, of course, just adds to the stress immeasurably. What? So who decided? Where was it written? Was it inevitable that the measure of success would be money? Whoever has the most? Why is money the measure? Is that innate in human nature? Or did we learn that <laughs> over a long, long time? And we here have really taken it 
and run with it. So the people who have millions feel poor in this country. Do you know that? Well, they do. I know some. People who have millions who are still scrambling around getting anxious about getting more because there's some kind of addiction going on. You can never have enough. And it creates uh, an environment that um, I think kills us. It, uh, it drains us physically and psychologically. And can you conceive of a culture that instead would value not money, not status, but value what? Kindness? Altruism? Service? That if those were the things of value and that the people who did those things were elevated and looked up to and ended up on the covers of magazines and interviewed by reporters. What is to keep that from being the case? I mean, you can argue like the most religions teach that value. They don't, I'm not aware of a religion except the sort of bastardization of, uh, you know, Christianity, this, this part of Christianity now that's about, uh, you know, what, I forget what they call it, um, which is all about acquiring wealth, that that's what Jesus really wanted you to do. Um, but the great religions <laughs> tried to teach that the things of real value um, have nothing to do with money and status. And quite clearly, that has not prevailed. And yet people value their religion and they say they conform to it or try to and they, they are tribal about their religions. And they go to church or synagogue or mosque or temple and, and they listen to these words and then they go back out into this toxic culture and, which rewards absolutely none of that. I don't know. So on one level, we're living large, right? We really are. We got so much. And we still take pride in being the wealthiest nation, the biggest, baddest military nation, the shining city on a hill. And it's mythology. It's total mythology. It's the difference between a dream and reality. 
so once you have that, you know, once you can't, once you get pretty immune to the mythology, and once you start just looking at what we have wrought, I don't think it's much to be proud of. Not in this time. This is the end. This is where we ended up here. How do we take a victory lap? And it isn't just Donald Trump. He is he is that Dorian Gray portrait hanging on our collective wall, but take him out, take the portrait down, and you still haven't changed the political culture, the corporate culture, any of it. So I just think that if people are sort of clear-eyed, they can't help but feel that they should be wearing almost like hazmat suits to live here now. It's that toxic. It's that bad for you. And it's why, in as much as we're capable of pulling away from our addiction to media, I, I don't know. We're nothing more than a, I mean, I just see us as hamsters on a wheel. Somebody tell me this isn't ringing absolutely true. We are one of the most, un, we are, I believe, the unhealthiest nation of means. How does that make us number one? If the American people are dying at younger ages, if the American people are stressed out more than most people, even though we got so much stuff. How does that make us great? Why don't we measure greatness in nations by which nations have healthy people mentally and physically what are those nations where people are living and they're living happily? <laughs> Why isn't that the measure? Because if it were, we wouldn't be anywhere near the top. And as I said yesterday, the guy on Jeopardy is you know, another case in point. Somebody who's destroying, I think, destroying something, but is lauded as he destroys this thing that so many people have enjoyed and valued. And he's destroying it because, well, he can. And he's being rewarded handsomely 
And so he now is a millionaire and still piling it on and making um, and becoming a celebrity. All of the things that we worship when so many people, little Tony, I'm talking to you, are mourning the loss of something they looked forward to every day. One of those little nice parts of our culture where we all sat down and sort of played this communal parlor game where we got to use our brains and we got to be impressed by other people's brains and we got to be worried about the slowness of our own. But it was fun. And now we've got this guy who embodies what we're about now, which is winner take all. Figure out the loophole. Figure out how to game the system. And then... So... It's like the whole idea of, you know, capitalism and, you know, the game of monopoly we all grew up with, the capitalist game. Uh, I don't, I mean, even as a child, I never liked the game, but I, I understood that the way it worked is ultimately somebody had it all and the rest of everybody had not much of anything. That was what the win would look like. And it turns out we see that playing out with our unfettered capitalism now. It's going to be a few big boys, a few big fish standing, and they'll still be trying to eat each other. And the rest of us? Pff, fend for yourselves. Scramble to get the crumbs. How am I not accurately describing the United States of America in 2019. It's more than America because this stuff, capitalism as you remember, won. <laughs> it won. It beat the commies in the big bad Cold War. And all those communist nations fell, and capitalism won. And we have this global capitalist economy now. And all the rot that goes with it. I've been carrying this story around for a week or so because it's it was so I was so <laughs> stunned to see it not really we're not stunned anymore are we um but this is out of Italy and you know Italy's not the United States of America how's Italy doing well Italy um, Italy is going in a bad direction. 
And I mean, if you there's certain countries if you start paying attention to them now, you get very nervous. <laughs> Italy is isn't one nowhere near as bad as Hungary and Poland, but bad. And the racism and anti-immigrant and right-wing and nationalistic and all the stuff that drives, for instance, uh, Donald Trump's base is driving an increasing number of Italians as well. And this article said that Italian, the language, has wonderful insults in it, if you learn the language. There, there, there's, there's curses you can put on someone's dead relatives. That's something, if, so if Trump spoke uh, Italian, he could uh, have a field day with uh, insulting John McCain. Um, there's all kinds of ways to call somebody an idiot in Italian, but there's a new word and it is the biggest put-down now, according to this article, in uh, the Italian culture. And it's to call somebody a buonista. B-U-O-N. Buona. Buena. Doesn't that mean good? Yeah, it does mean good. The word buonista means a do-gooder. That is a pejorative. The leader of the, uh, the right-wing anti-immigrant party in Italy, uh, a guy named uh, Salvini, is the one who has popularized this word. You make fun of do-gooders. So they say that this is an indication of politics now in Italy where being good or trying to be good is bad where expertise is mocked. Is this sounding familiar to you? And where hard economic data is cooked, is ridiculed, where science is ridiculed, where math is ridiculed, and where people trying to live the teachings of Jesus and their other religions are insulted as being buonista. This is not just Italy where this is happening. The uh, far-right party in Germany, called Alternatives for Germany, ha also insults 
uh, its opponents by calling them uh, Gutmensch. You don't even have to know German to be able to translate that. A Gutmensch, a good man. How does Gutmensch become a pejorative? When cultures become corrupted and toxic. The pejorative use, what happened is that the Gutmensch thing was taking off so much. You know, you don't say it with, ah, he's a good man, a Gutmensch. It's like, a Gutmensch. Ah, a Buenista. That's a pejorative. Anyone who shows tolerance or helpfulness, and this almost always has to do with refugees, anyone who exhibits sympathy, compassion, tries to lend a helping hand, they are defamed <laughs> as buenistas and gutmensch and all of that stuff. They are said and laugh, laughingly said to be um, naive, idiots. One of the biggest newspapers in Milan recently headlined a story um, of a rally where hundreds of thousands of uh, Italians turned out to protest what they believed were the racist policies of their new government. You had 200,000 people in the streets and the newspaper headline was a carnival of buenistas. So I've been... This is something that people who look beyond, uh, you know, the Atlantic Ocean are seeing a lot of. God knows we see it here as well. And it is a continuing effort by the far right to make civility bad. To make meanness good. That sounds like so unbelievable, but that is what they're doing. It is what Trump does when he says very fine people on both sides. When he calls struggling refugees and asylum seekers murderers and rapists. Meanness seen as a positive and civility 
as something to be avoided. Um, the guy in Italy, Salvini, is just like Trump. He calls immigrants there uh, people who fight, steal, rape, and deal drugs. And he says, and yet the do-gooders would have you believe that the problem with Italy is ten right-wing guys reading a pamphlet. But the reality is, is the real-world consequences of playing with words like this, of using words to redefine long-standing norms, is that the space between making meanness okay, labeling people who are not ma murderers, rapists, and drug dealers, murderers, rapists, and drug dealers, is this close to having somebody act on those words. And as this Salvini guy, much like Trump here, has increasingly attacked immigrants in Italy verbally, a lot of other Italians have ratcheted up. And the number of immigrants and people of color in Italy that are being physically harmed has gone way way up. He says Italy, no, this person is saying that it, Italy now is a country built on anger. Well, I think that could be said of us too. A country where you begin to interpret good manners and civility <laughs> as a negative and in fact as enabling the destruction of your nation because that's how they see it. That's scary stuff. So I mean it, when I have this feeling about oh my god America we are not what we pretend um, it is it is not just us we We live on a very small, increasingly polluted in every way planet and then I'm watching the news, Lester Holt before jeopardy, and I actually started laughing at it because if you watch the news again with some measure of media literacy. It was almost every other story was about something to be afraid of. And they're always coming up with stuff you didn't even hear about. So that the one that made me laugh was, and beware. And they even showed a map of the United States where it's called the kissing bug. And it's an insect. Pretty big. I'd say it looks about like this. And it has somehow now in the United States... And they painted this disgusting picture of them 
called a kissing bug because it likes to like bite you on your face while you sleep. And it can cause terrible symptoms. And God knows. And I'm watching this and thinking, you know, I think it followed a report on stress <laughs> in America. I think. Yeah, there was. There was some special report on overworked Americans and stress and all that kind of stuff. And then after that, they gave, if any of you saw the news last night on uh, NBC, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong. And then they thought, all right, we got stressed out people watching this. Let's add to it. Let's tell them about this kissing bug and show them pictures of this scary-looking thing where they won't sleep at night now, imagining it crawling around on their face while they sleep. Oh, dear God. Barbara says, how about the term zeitgeist for what you're talking about? Zeitgeist, another German word, obviously, is defined as the spirit of a generation or period. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, our zeitgeist now, without a doubt, is toxic and life-threatening, um, I, I do think. Like the 60s zeitgeist was, uh, you know, more about, I don't know, free love, it says here. Well, it was more than that. But yeah, right now it's just flat out meanness, ugliness, and the elevation of values that are false gods. One nation under mammon. I really choke on the Pledge of Allegiance now, the Star Spangled Banner, because, again, we're not living up to any of it. Excuse me. German Zeit means time, and Geist is like ghost. So, so it can mean an informing spirit as the term Holy Ghost. Well, I don't know. You learn stuff. Um, Lou reminds me that, yes, our own Steve Bannon now has established, you know where he is. He's in Europe, and he's working with all these people. I'm sure he and Salvini are good friends. And she points out... Um, or Lou, I don't know if you're a she or a he, come to think of it. Sorry. Lou points out that uh, Bannon has established a home base in Italy and a nationalism institute. Yeah, this is all true. Roger says, you know, my wife and I are going to Italy in October. Based on what you're saying, should we wear MAGA hats? For safety's sake there? <laughs> it probably wouldn't hurt, but I wouldn't do it. We have a call. Caller, go ahead, please. Hey, Lynn, it's Mike in Hi. D.C. Hi, Mike. 
this may be a stretch. Some people think it is, but I think this rise of the bully and the machismo equaling strength and is really um, misogyny and a pushback from all the from the past generation or so that's been taught to, um, you know, be a metrosexual, be a bro, be a um, just a caring individual, be concerned about the environment. I think this is all a pushback from that. And the opposite of that machismo is caring and kindness, which is usually associated with a woman. So if I'm a misogynist, I don't want anything around me that's like a woman, not gays, not kind people, not metrosexuals, and God forbid, a real woman. Well, yeah, I think there's definitely, that's that's a big part of the puzzle, right. That that's more that takes in the social aspects of it all and maybe psychological, but capitalism is a big driver of a lot of what I'm talking about too. Not seeing humans yeah, as, but, as people, but seeing them simply as uh, you know bags of money to be uh, to be expropriated from them and uh, you know manipulating them to to surrender it to you for things they don't need and things like that. So people are acted on by that in ways that stresses them out, and, and it's a game they can't win. And that's a huge part of but it. Culture. Make, but it makes them feel strong. It makes them feel powerful. And I think that's what they're really searching for is that. Well, and you're right. We measure success in our culture by the wrong metrics. Totally. And and um, I have this discussion with people all the time. Can you find a better way to measure your value and how much you make or your waist size or how many admirers you have? Can you find a better way of measuring your value as a human being? I don't think people can. You know, I, I do know. There have been times when I've done a lot of stuff and I have um, not been paid for them when I should be. And people have said to me many times, but you see, if you undervalue yourself, you're undervaluing your your work by not expecting to be. And I'm thinking... Well, I'm not. The person who's not paying me might think that's what they're doing, um, but none of this makes any sense to me. The, the, the amount of money you're given makes you uh, more or less valuable. That's bull. It's such bull. I'm and look at the ramifications, too. I mean, if we look at the college admission scandal... Right, all those people who paid all that money to get their kid, who clearly wasn't able to get into those colleges on their own, adding status, thinking that adding status to their life um, because they have that money will make them better in some way, or make their kid be a better human being, or or give them a leg up in the world. Well, guess what? At least for those 25 people, it's not. And but stop and think about it. Those people who did that are already living at the top of the heap. And they're still 
looking for ways not happy. to scramble right. and get there. You're never happy. And I remember right. once right. when I did see my value in what I was, and I wasn't being paid that much, asking uh, a general manager at uh, a television station for a raise. And he said to me, well, sure, I could give you a raise, but then I'm telling you, here's what happens. You're, you start spending more than you're spending now, and you'll feel just as poor as you do now in six months after you get the raise. And you know what? <laughs> I mean, it was a nice way for him to avoid giving me a raise, but it was, that's true. You can never make enough the way our culture's set up. Never. Because the minute you got money, you spend it. And then you feel poor. And, and studies do prove that point, that if you want to motivate your employees, um, paying them more only works, only motivates them for a certain period of time. Right, and then they're right back where they started. Because but that's our... unfair, because <laughs> not everybody even makes a living wage. Exactly. I mean, there's a point when... Okay, if I'm making, what was that guy that found out that $70,000 was a living wage? If I'm making yeah. that, um, that's one thing. But most people who ask for raises are asking for a dime or 1% or 2%. And I don't know. Well, and no, when that guy did that at that company, he lost some of his higher paid people because they then didn't feel like their status was recognized. Be, if everybody was making 70 when they used to be making 20 and 30 and 40 and this guy was making 80, well, uh-uh, that can't be. And so they left. It's that ingrained that it's... And that's a very masculine thing. I don't think women do ranking as much as men do. Um, women do tend to be more collegial man it's you know kill or be killed how my dick's bigger than your dick that's right. what it's all about yeah and i have more zeros after my paycheck than you do yeah see who <gasps> i'm, so a, I'm a better per so what does that say so i'm a better the best people in the it, world are people who don't have much money and i think often they're happier as long as they have enough so you're not living in absolute terror um, but I, money does not make you a better person, certainly, and it doesn't make you happier. It makes you less, it can make you less stressed because you don't have to worry, oh my God, if something were to happen, could I, because you could. However, it makes you more stressed because you're now in a different stratosphere and you're now competing with all these other people right who might there's still people looking down on you in this culture you're still a small fish a millionaire's nothing in this country now nothing <laughs> right nothing nothing the guy sitting next yeah, to you on the bus could be a millionaire yeah it, 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 nothing i wonder if it's that people think that if i have money then i won't have problems well, that's stupid. They might not right. have money problems. Although you have a different kind of money problem if you have money. You got a, 
I don't know, tend to it in some ways, I guess. Or not. I mean, you could have money and not do a damn thing with it, but that doesn't seem right either. In a job interview I had recently, the guy said to me, what would you do if you won the lottery? And I said I would start a nonprofit company and donate all of that money to that nonprofit company and I'd be the president of that nonprofit company and hire people to distribute that money to other nonprofits. And he said, wow, that was the best answer I've ever had. Oh, good. I was wondering if he'd disdain your answer. <laughs> you didn't say, I buy a Maserati and a fifth home and a, yeah. no, you didn't, huh? Yeah, and that's what all interview questions are all tests like that anyway. I had one yesterday. It said, describe your superpower. Oh, for Christ's sake. And what would you say? <laughs> uh, some BS about I'm really good at making boring information seem interesting. Well, good for but, you for um, coming up with that. How about I could say I, I have x-ray vision and I can see you're wearing tidy whities Oh, no, Lynn. Now interviews are all... Over the phone. I've only uh, had two interviews so far that were in person. There you go. Are you sure you were talking to a real person and not a robot? <laughs> they sounded real. All right. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty soon you ain't going to be they able to could have been tell. in Russia. Oh, God almighty. But so, I think, just to, re just to reiterate my point, I do think that it has a lot to do with that misogyny. masculinity and yeah. the hate of femininity. Yeah. yeah, okay. I do think that's a big part. You're right. Which is why I guess... Enjoy your weekend. Which is why, yeah, thank you. Which is why Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, two old white guys, are leading the pack, right? All right. Thank you. Don't even get me started down that road. No, 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 no. Me either. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hey, I just want to um, uh, share this because, you know, so on Fridays, that is what today is, right, the Wall Street Journal has this disgusting um, section called Mansion, and in it you get to see inside the houses of the rich and famous, and, and you get, the, the one today was about people's libraries, and oh my God, and what else did I see? Who was selling uh, Paul Simon's house is for sale for 30-some million dollars. And there was a picture of one room, and it had all this, like it was, I don't know, it had pianos in it and stuff like that. Maybe it was Billy Joel. I don't know who the hell it was. But it's that kind of thing. It's like, oh, here, and now you get to peek inside what the important people how they live and you can aspire or it'll make you feel unhappy as you look around your living room i don't know i'm not sure what it's all about but it's again part of the culture which makes me puke but they do one thing which i've sometimes enjoyed which is they will take a person and ask that person to tell them about their childhood and the environment they grew up in. And so these are usually very successful people, and often they came from not much. And today I was pleased to see that 
the person they chose is a Pittsburgh guy who grew up in the um, Highland Park, uh, actor Charles Grodin. And um, they write these things them themselves. I'm sure they're, they're edited, but just because of the Pittsburgh aspect of it and because um, he's a nice guy. Of course he is. He's Pittsburgher. Um, I'll read some of what he said. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh. My family wasn't particularly well off. We lived along a streetcar line. You could hear them clatter past the house. They were part of the noise of everyday life. One day, when I was 12, a streetcar ran over a boy I knew. I watched as trucks struggled to lift the streetcar to free him, but he was gone. It was deeply upsetting to me. He could have been me, that boy. The event made me cherish life and encouraged me to be careful. Ever since, I've erred on the side of caution. Growing up in the 1940s in our tiny brick house, I shared a room with my brother. And he goes on to talk about his family. My father, Ted, had a, a wholesale business called the Groden Company. He sold supplies to cleaners, tailors, and dressmakers. He was very sick throughout my childhood. He had a rheumatic heart as a boy. He'd work seven days a week, come home, have dinner, and go to bed, where we'd hear him coughing incessantly. My mother worked with my father. He talks about attending public school and then starting Hebrew school. And then at 14, whenever I wasn't in one school or the other, I worked at my father's business. I counted buttons. I carried boxes of hangers. In 1953, soon after I graduated from high school, my father died. So he goes down to study drama at the University of Miami because a friend was going there and convinced him, hey, let's go to the University of Miami. And so he went. And uh, he was told he had some talent, but after six months, he quit. He said, it wasn't for me, so I came home, and I auditioned for the Pittsburgh Playhouse, and I won a scholarship. And I stayed there for a year and a half, and then someone else told him, hey, you're good. So he went off to New York City and studied with the great Uta Hagen. And then he tells this cute story. Thinking back to Pittsburgh, I was lucky. My family lived near the zoo. In bed, I'd make up jokes just before the hyenas laughed. When I told Johnny Carson that story on The Tonight Show in the early 80s, there was a novelist in New York named Elisa Durwood who was watching. She fell in love with me. So she finagled a way to interview him for a film magazine. 
And after the interview, he says, I asked her to marry me. <laughs> without, without hesitation, she said yes. What? And they're still, they're still married. Uh, so his wife saw him on the Johnny Carson show, thought it was adorable, his joke about the hyenas at the Pittsburgh Zoo, laughing at the jokes he was telling himself in bed, finagles a interview with him, and he asked her to marry him after the interview. And she said yes. Could that be true? <laughs> anyway, that's our own uh, Charles uh, Grodin. Um, Jonathan writes, on your money discussion of who decided if you have more money than, th who decided that if you have more money you're a better person? Hasn't it been ever thus that those who have plenty, whether it's money or food or land, are better? Well, they're more powerful. And we, after all, with plenty comes power. Right. I'm sorry, Jonathan, I just read your thing. It's probably been that way since cave times, and it certainly has since biblical times. Yeah, why would Jesus have been preaching what he preached if people were already not polluted and confused by what was given value and what wasn't? I mean, you're absolutely right. It's no different. You're right. Humans, so it is human nature. I guess that's my complaint. It's with human nature. What is the most destructive animal? What is the one animal that God shouldn't have created? Us. Because we've destroyed almost everything else he created. Or he seems hell-bent on trying to. Well, you're right, Jonathan. It has ever been thus. But he's come on a positive. <laughs> in other news, he says, we live in a time when an openly gay man can run for president and introduce the world to his husband. Plus, if you don't mind me saying, you look prettier every day. Oh, Thank you. That was sweet. Thank you. Yeah, well, I've only got a minute left. Well, I won't end on that. It's a negative, and that was nice, and I'll stop. Um, so, you know, all those people who were saying, hey, the pirates are in first place. The pirates are in first place. Hey! I even said it to my brother. You know, the pirates are in first place. And no sooner did I say that than they lost the next four games. They got swept, right, by the Diamondbacks. We, well, God bless them. They're a nice distraction from another time.
anyway, that's it for me. And um, I'm sorry I'm such a Debbie Downer and a negative Nelly, but it is my my human nature, <laughs> my makeup. Anyway, I love you all, and uh, have a great weekend. See you Monday. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers. <laughs>